Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 6th, 2022, and um, over the last few weeks, there seems to be a really interesting debate brewing about how to be a parent in America. Uh, we've done lots of shows about it. Last year, I did a show with Emily Oster, uh, a very popular parenting expert. Uh, she has a new book out, The Family Firm, A Data-Driven Guide to Better Decision-Making in the Early School Years. I don't want to put Emily into a box, but she does teach at a business school and seems to suggest that in some ways running a family and perhaps bringing up children isn't that different from running a corporation. Uh, on the other hand, uh, last week I had the Stanford, very popular Stanford writer, Julie Lifcott Haynes on the show, who has, a, I think, quite a different way of thinking about parenting and how to bring children into the grown-up world. Uh, her new book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. She also has a book about how to be an adult from a, both a parenting and a child's point of view. I think what this debate suggests that is America is, in a sense, a parenting nation. And um, that is indeed the subject of our discussion today with uh, Dana Suskind, whose new book, Parent Nation, Unlocking Every Child's Potential, Fulfilling Society's Promise, actually has been blurbed by Emily Oster. I'm thrilled and honored that uh, Dana Suskind is joining us from the University of Chicago, where she teaches. Uh, Dana, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Apparently, it's a, an instant New York Times bestseller, which shows that there is an enormous appetite for figuring out how to be a good parent in America today. Um, what's your read on people's appetite on their sense of, of, of where they feel they're letting their children down. As a parent, uh, I, I certainly uh, believe that it's the toughest and perhaps uh, the most troubling work I've ever had. Well, let me tell you, that question is emblematic of actually the problem in our country. Uh, it, we have convinced parents that it is a go-it-alone uh, scenario, that raising children in this country means that you get absolutely zero societal support, and that's just the way it is. And so as a result, we have sort of internalized this sort of American individualism, the myth, myth of going it alone, and we often blame ourselves for failings when really uh, the societal constructs have made it almost impossible to uh, raise children in this country unless you're lucky enough to be in the top 1%. We make it really, really hard. Let's just say that. Is it the top 1%, um, uh, Dana, or perhaps the top 10 or 15%? I don't know where you are in, in those percentiles, but I'm not in the top one, and most of the people I know aren't in the top one. But it seems as if the people that I'm... The, the, the social world that I'm part of are the top 10 or 15%. And we, for better or worse, seems to be doing an okay job. We have the resources, the focus, and the time. So is it 1% versus 15%? You know, I, I'm not sure if it's if 
I can actually answer it from a number standpoint, but but we because of the vacuum of sort of societal supports, those families with adequate resources sort of fill in the gaps, as you say. And if you have the adequate resources, um, you you find a way to make it work. But the result is that those who aren't um, quite as lucky, which is a very large percentage of our population, it has made uh, parenting a real struggle. I take your point about defining the exact numbers, but there's a huge difference between one and 15 or 20 percent. It's always convenient to blame and point at that mythological one percent. Doesn't this simply reflect the profound structural inequalities in America today? Absolutely. And the view of raising, bringing children in this world, I always say bringing children in this world, we we treat it like having a puppy. It's sort of, you know, an individual choice, like, you know, a go it alone scenario. It's all on you rather than seeing that raising healthy children is the foundation for our future society. It's the future doctors, bus drivers, software engineers, and that we all have a role to play and we all benefit from it, uh, ultimately. You know, when I was reading your stuff, it occurred to me that uh, it reminded me of, of, of Moore's Utopia, written about 500 years ago, a satirical book about what he called Utopia, he invented the world where uh, that the, 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 there was a sort of collective ownership of, of, of children. Is that what you're suggesting what do we need or what should we do differently yeah. uh, in terms of bringing children up and you know I'm sure you're not suggesting a uh, a utopian or a platonic yeah. version of, of parents no. collectively no, definitely, children. definitely definitely not um, I always say you know there you, you've heard the term you know it takes a village to raise a child and actually Angela Duckworth uh, said that somebody actually said it takes a parent to raise a child or a caregiver to raise a child, but then a society to support that parent. And that's really what I'm talking about. Uh, I come from this uh, world as a pediatric surgeon, as a social scientist, neuroscientist. And what is so clear is that especially in the early years, parents and caregivers are are their children's brain architects. They are literally through their nurturing talk and interaction and protection from toxic stress, building children's brains. Um, But we know that this important work of building the next generation doesn't happen in a vacuum. And so really this, this book lays out a path forward using that same neuroscience to imagine what does a society look like that really aligns with that neuroscience and aligns with the fact that those early years and parents and caregivers are building children's brains. I remember with our kids, we we went to the hospital, we brought them home and we were on our own. Um, And that's what simply being a parent is, for better or worse, in America. For you, this parent nation stands for, and I'm quoting you, fostering community, forging collective identity and fighting for change. What concretely does that mean? It it sounds good, but this stuff about you know, forging collective identity and fostering community. It always sounds good, but it's very hard to get from the theory to the practice. Yeah, no. So actually, those three Fs that you mentioned aren't what a parent nation are. That's how we get to it. A parent nation at the end of the day is a society that 
values and supports the labor and love of you know, raising the next generation, that understands what it is that children need in the early years for this healthy brain development. And I always say, and this book is about the fact that the neuroscience is so clear. We understand what children need for healthy development. We un we've got a huge economic case. I mean, I, you know, the center that I co-direct is partially in the Department of Economics. I mean, there's a huge economic case to be made, both for long-term return on investments as well as short-term, right, for the economy. So we have both these things. What we don't have is the public and political will to push forward the necessary sort of shifts in social norms and policies. And it's not just a policy play. So those three Fs that you mentioned, finding community, forging collective identity and fighting for change is really the methodology that, that I think needs to happen to bring the collective voice of this 60 million parents across the country who need and desire and deserve this support in the early years. You sound to me um, more in the in the Oster camp in in the sense of treating the family, if not as a firm, as sort of America as a collectively a family firm. In contrast with somebody like Lifcott Haynes's focus on on letting children survive on their own, um, do you expect a lot of political pushback on this? I think it might sound chilling to some people who really focus on the perhaps libertarian foundations of American culture and politics? Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is, you know, in this country, the idea of parental choice is sacrosanct, right? Um, as, as it should be. Parents know best how they want to raise their children. So that's very much in, in the viewpoint that you just mentioned. But in this country, with the vacuum of support, really parents have no choice. So if we really want to make good on our beliefs that parents should be able to choose how to raise their children, whether they you know, want to stay home to raise their children or go to work and have their children to be in you know, healthy sort of brain stimulating environments, we need to actually provide those supports that, so there are choices to be made. Um, and the truth of the matter is, is that this is, you know, people are talking a lot, of, you know, we. It feels like a very polarized time, but this is an area that most people agree on. Most people agree that, you know, that one in four women go back to work two weeks after giving birth to a child is not parental choice. It's a country that doesn't truly value the importance of parents or children, a country that doesn't have high quality childcare that, you know, 90% of childcare is of varying quality isn't truly uh, a country that, you know, values the the early years and the importance of brain building. So the truth is, is that providing these sort of supports, and it's not just policy. I mean, it's changes in the way we do business and the importance of business and healthcare. This is really a whole societal shift. It's not just a, you know, a policy play. Though certainly policy plays a role. You mentioned uh, Dana the idea of building brains. You you write about it in some detail in the book as well as um, uh, in an article, an interesting op-ed on CNBC. I never really thought as a parent about building my kids' brains. Maybe I yeah. should have. Uh, you talk about the three things. What can parents do to help build their brains that they're not doing and how can 
government or society or public opinion help parents with this? Well, actually, you know, it's interesting. The whole, my, my life has been devoted to the, you know, allowing all children to have healthy brain development. And I, I don't think people really think about it in this way, but those first three years of life are an evolutionary gift because in those first three years of life, 85% of the physical brain is grown. You, you see, unlike our other organs, our, our brains come out pretty underdeveloped. And the universe, it was, a, it was an evolutionary trade-off because if we were gonna be the smartest, sort of most creative of all species, and our brains would have completely been grown in utero, we wouldn't fit through a mother's pelvis. Um, so there was a trade-off that those first years of life, you know, some, some people call it the fourth and fifth trimesters, are when we were going to finish growing this child's brain, our children's brains. But there was an expectation that nurturing interaction from parents and ca loving caregivers would be giving the instruction guide to the to the brain as it was wiring up these billions of neurons. And what do children need? It's really not that complex. It's nurturing interaction, right? Talk and interaction, those coos, those eye contacts, those snuggles are not only showing your child's love, but they're actually wiring up the brain. And in our in the center and in, in our center that I, I co-direct at the University of Chicago, the basis of all of our programs um, is that idea. And we boiled it down to what we call, we boiled down the science to what we call the three T's: how to build your child's brain. The three T's are tune in, tune in to your child, talk more and take turns. Take turns is really having a conversation with your child from day one. And believe it or not, those three T's are build that child's brain, a million new neural connections in those first three years of life. Um, and so that's what a child can do. And, how, and what can society do to best help that? I mean, you know, whether it be policies that allow parents to have paid leave or employers that give uh, parents flexibility or, you know, a healthcare system that provides the knowledge and support to parents, um, what they can do is give them the, you know, the time, the enrichment, and the stability so parents can be their children's first and most important arch brain architects. Are there other countries which are models that America should try to emulate? And don't say Denmark, because we always Denmark always comes up in these sorts of conversations. No. I mean, first of all, I, I think the listener, I think many people don't realize what an outlier we are compared to the rest of the world. I mean, we are literally the only OECD country, only developed nation without paid family and medical leave. As I mentioned, one in four mothers have to go back to work after 10 days to two weeks. It's it's crazy. We, we invest less than any other country. You know, the average of developed nations is about $14,000 per year for a toddler for childcare. I mean, forget about the Scandinavian countries at 29,000. We're down at $500 a, a year for child, for children. I, I, I just wanted to say all of this because it's not like we're like almost there. We are just so far away. And so what is a model? You know, look, at this point, I just want us to be, you know, a good enough. We don't have to be the best, um, but what are some models? You know. I'm going to say, I'm going to say a country that you're going to like roll your eyes, but believe it or not, Finland. And you're going to say, well, they, of course, they've always been that way. But the neat thing about Finland is that they weren't always that way. They were actually, you know, at the 
I don't want to say bottom of the barrel, but educationally, they were really struggling. And they completely revamped what they, they did, both in the early childhood care space as well as later on. And it is, you know, now they're one of the leaders educationally. Um, so... How I know I, I buy some of this, Dana, but realistically, it's just it it is it seems to me, for better or worse, to be utopia. I mean, the headlines today are about how the White House lost Joe Manchin, Build Back Better is dead. Um, Biden, he may not be dead, but he seems to be on his last legs. It's very unlikely that the Democrats will retain Congress. It's quite likely that they'll. Republicans will win back the um, not just um, the Senate, but perhaps the presidency in 2024. How likely is any of this stuff in the America of 2022? Yes. Yeah, so there is no doubt that it feels stuck right here. I'm saying, oh, we've got this powerful brain science. We've got a huge economic case. I mean, it feels so hopeless. But the truth is, is I look to bright spots that give me hope. And, you know, I know that this country is capable of great sweeping change. And you could say, well, how is that, Dana? Come on. The truth is, is that less than, or, you know, probably a half a century ago, um, there was a different age demographic that was struggling mightily. Those elderly, those over 65, those over 65 back then were the poorest segment of the population. Over 50% lived below the minimum standards of decency. They were struggling because of health care costs, lack of retirement. And guess what? By bringing their voices together and through the AARP and the Gray Lobby, fast forward, you know, 50 plus years, no age demographic is better supported or has a, a more powerful political voice. Why? Because the AARP brought together their, their voices and legislators, policymakers feel like they have to actually respond to them. Right now, the poorest segment of the population are children zero to five. They are the most impoverished, which is an obscenity in their parents. Um, but there are, you know, 60 plus million parents. And, you know, if you want to focus on the early years, there is a large swath of parents that are struggling in the same ways, that love their children in the same ways. And if their voices were to be brought together in the same way, um, I believe that there could be huge transformation in this country. It's not a short game, right? You know, I know we all sort of focus on the next, you know, time point, which I know is important. Um, but, you know, we have been at this for hundreds of years. I mean, I can tell you back in the last 19, in the early 1900s, we had a really positive uh, maternal child health public health uh, initiative that transformed, that decreased mortality rates in infants dramatically. And because we didn't have a voting block, you know, or a political uh, policy block, it was rolled back. So I think that there is potential, but we've got to find a way to build this, build this collective identity and bring a collective voice to it. Building the collective identity is, is interesting. Um, you suggest that, um, uh, American 60 plus million parents need to unite. Do you think there needs to be a new political party, perhaps a political party built around the idea of parenting and the family? Yeah, so I hate, not I hate, but you know, whenever you bring the word politics in, for some reason, it's, um, 
I don't think it always goes well. The truth is, is that in my book, I talk to parents from all different walks of all different backgrounds, all religious, political, you know, socioeconomic, demographic. And what was amazing is that even though on the surface they looked very different, their struggles and concerns were remarkably similar. And when I gave them a magic wand, right, and I said, okay, what would you, what would you like to see different? It was remarkably similar. So I actually think if there was a way to, you know, an umbrella that, you know, transcended, you know, politics and this sort of polarization. But that's not going to happen. I mean, that's oh, all very well, Dana, but it, it just won't happen. Transcending oh, really? politics is is completely unrealistic in an America dominated by politics and dominated by political well, division. You know what? The truth is, is that the ARP, I mean, look, at the end of the day, it is the way we vote that makes a huge difference is why way we invest. But the truth is, is that the ARP did, it actually started out um, providing support for elderly. They built up this large political group, right? 38 million strong. They, they had a sort of market-based strategy. You know, we always joke they people join for the insurance and travel discounts and stay for the community. Um, but they have been incredibly effective in transforming what it is to be elderly and getting the societal support, the deserving support um, from both policymakers as well as employers, et cetera. So, no, I mean, but if you if you ground it in that and then move policy, then sure. If you start off, so that's my own, that's my own thoughts anyways. But I'm a surgeon. What do I know? Well, you know, I mean, you, you, you know a lot and you put your, yourself on the line with this parent nation. <laughs> I, I take your ARP argument, but creating parent nation, creating the equivalent of a parent group for parents in, in America, wouldn't that just create more horse trading, more self-interest? Uh, because parents and, say, old people probably don't share the same interest. They don't share the same interest on tax. They don't share the same interest on subsidies, on where to invest money on, 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 on medical help. So it's only going to create, I mean, ultimately, for better or worse, this is a political issue. Well, well, first of all, I would push back on this idea that there's, you know, that the elderly block and a parenting block couldn't be very close. I mean, there's huge transgenerational uh, interest in this. I mean, these are, you know, first of all, the elderly have, you know, have grandchildren and, um, you know, I've actually been, you know, I've talked to the ex-CEO of the ARP. They care deeply about this issue. They care about their grandchildren. They care about their children. Um, it isn't a zero-sum game. I mean, the the truth is, is that, but unless we have people voting in the interests of children, children don't vote. Um, our children are suffering. And so, you know, we can talk about, all, you know, all these other issues, but there has to be a way to align our country with, you know, the science that shows that children are you know, in the early years, it's the most important time for their future outcomes. So, you know, you it's either that or it stays the same where we have an obscene child poverty rate with children not reaching their potentials. We, we have a choice of our, in our country and we either become the family, you know, 
family-centered nation that we pro proclaim to be, or we we say it and don't do it. So, what about the children themselves? Do you feel you've you've done a lot of research in this area? You go around the country giving speeches. Your your book is a bestseller. Do you feel that as if the children of America feel left let let down, left out? You know, that's a that's a big discussion. Um, the truth is, is that my focus is on the first three to five years of life. So back at that point of time, they they want to be fed, loved, mm. and nurtured. Um, but, 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 <laughs> let, let me rephrase the question, Dana, and it's an interesting question. Maybe you can answer it in, as a as a as a cognitive expert. Um, how, how long are our memories in terms of being ill-prepared for this world? If, as you suggest, we're, we're not being prepared properly, um, do, how is it being manifested by children? Is it in anger, in depression, in anxiety, oh. in, a, in a generational revolt? Because there seems to be a there are all sorts of crises in America going on right now, you know, from, from COVID to politics but the one that comes up more and more is the the anxiety seem to yeah. be afflicting yeah. young people is is that do you think one of the reasons that that anxiety is being driven by the fact that consciously or otherwise they haven't been properly prepared for this world oh you know you this is definitely outside my expertise i mean i can tell you that well, I, I, I'm in, intrigued with, uh, I mean, it's not an expert question. It's not a scientific yeah, question. I'm interested think, in, in what I, you I think. Don't know, I don't know if it's that they don't, you know, again, this is just opinion, you know, is it that they don't feel inadequate, you know, adequately prepared or there's a huge amount of uncertainty in this world and in, in the moment of adolescence. I mean, you're talking about the adolescent mental health crisis that, that is so very real. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of instability and, you know, in the midst of the pandemic and isolation and school closures. But I, you know, again, this is all opinion of a, of parent and a researcher. So, but, you know, I always, I, I don't always joke. I often say that the early childhood system, we really have no infrastructure. We, you know, the COVID, you know, really was like an earthquake that showed us just how shaky our infrastructure of support for, you know, young children and parents was. But in that same way, our mental health system uh, is equally uh, not invested in. So I'm hoping that these are two wake up calls that we better invest in both both these areas. So because we don't we don't invest in either. Dana, we had a journalist on the show, science journalist who wrote a book imagining what if you had a trillion dollars and you could invest it in making the world a better place. You've talked about this crisis of the absence of architecture for early childhood development. If you had that trillion dollars, if someone gave that to you, what would you do to begin to fix the problem of early child development? Yeah. So I would do, you know, I always talk about what is a parent nation? Because remember, you, you, you were mentioning parent nation as a lobby. For me, parent nation is an ideal of a society that truly values the labor and love going into raising the next generation. And it is, as I mentioned, I think it takes all parts of society to 
really build a parent nation and to support parents, right? It takes business, healthcare, you know, policy in the, you know, really the bringing together of parents. So I would probably take a, you know, a four societal part strategy. Um, I would build this, you know, parent facing coalition, if you will, where it really allowed parents to come together to find community, forge collective identity and fight for change. And I've heard so much about parents feeling isolated and alone. And I feel like building that will be will pay off dividends, both for the families as well as our society. Can I just jump in? I, I, I try not to interrupt, but this idea of forging collective identity, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. You know, in when you talk about elderly, right, they 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 immediately think of themselves as a group, right? As a group that needs to, you know, isn't just connected by age, but you know, the societal supports that they so deservedly receive, you know, if there's ever question of it rolling back, they come together because they see themselves as a larger whole. Um, there are a lot of different groups that I could imagine that you you think, I, I feel like I'm part of that collective. Mm. Um, I'm in a collective of surgeons. I'm a collective of farmers. Um, when you say to parents, you know, what are you? There, You will often hear, I mean, I feel like I'm a parent, but when I look at you across the, the screen, I don't see, oh, you're a parent, you're an ally, you want the same thing. You just want to get your kid off to the best possible start. And, you know, you struggle with, you know, wanting to do right by your child. No, I see, you know, I see a different identity. And I think that that results in this sort of siloing of our the potential collective voice that we bring for advocating for our children and for our for our country. So building a collective identity means that we we see we see our commonalities, that there's so much more that unites us than separates us. And that's an important, I think that on top uh, connected with elevating our expectations of what society can and should do are critical sort of theories of change that need to allow us to get to the next level. Because in this country, unlike any other country, we because of this internalization of it's an individual level issue, we fail to expect or demand societal or business or any other support in this endeavor of raising the next generation. So I think we need these two things to be able to push forward the other stuff. Did that Final question, Dana, because I know you've got to run. Um, there's a lot of evidence, some of it anecdotal, that younger people, teenagers, people in their 20s, age similar to your kids and my kids, they don't want to have kids. They, they, they definitely don't want to have kids because they claim the world has gone to rot and that they're not going to bring kids into this world. Now, as I said, some of this is anecdotal. Um, but do you think the absence of a parent nation is putting off young people wanting to have children? Yeah, no, no. It, I, there's actually more data around this than you'd expect. But, you know, although last month I saw that we we, we crept up a little bit in fertility rates, but our country's fertility rates are about 1.7. You know, for replacement to maintain a population, you need about 2.1 children per person. Um, but now we're at 1.7. And so, and most of the reasons that people are saying that they're not having or delaying 
having children um, is because of the lack of, it just costs so much and it's stressful. I mean, the, the, this, the research is clear. Parents are less happy than non-parents. And in our country, that gap is the largest of, around the world. And so, yes, there is a direct relationship between this lack of valuing and supporting parents and caregivers to why people are saying, oh my God. I mean, the number one uh, advice that my child, who I mentioned, who's in Silicon Valley got when she started you know, her, her fancy new role was like, look, to get ahead, it wasn't to like get an advanced degree or network, you know, it was like hold off or don't have children as long, you know, hold off or don't have children. Like, because it is so hard, we make it incredibly hard. And it doesn't actually, that's the funny thing. It really doesn't have to be this hard. So. It doesn't have to be this hard. That is the, the essence of um, Dana Suskin's new book, a, already a bestseller, Parent Nation, Unlocking Every Child's Potential, Fulfilling Society's Promise. Very interesting and important new book. Congratulations, Dana. Very Finally, Thank finally, is, is there another book you would suggest people read alongside uh, Parent Nation? One other book? Perhaps? Can I give you two books? Of course. You can give me uh, three if you want. So one is by um, a great researcher, Caitlin Collins, uh, motherhood, Making Motherhood Work. And then the other is by a very handsome economist called The Voltage Effect, John List. Yeah, John was on the show and he actually introduced me to you. Well, you know we're married. And he didn't describe you as handsome. <laughs> but he did describe you as brilliant. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad. I'll, I'll, I'll be nice to him tonight at dinner. <laughs>